again, welcome to another episode of PFL Pod for Life, your Tennessee football podcast. We don't get a do-over at this episode, uh, unfortunately. Myself, uh, I'm David Ubbin, your host. My co-host, Joe Rexroad, uh, Nashville columnist and senior writer. But Joe wrote about a do-over this week. We're doing a series of stories about this. Uh, Joe, you started with a simple premise. What if Tennessee could do over the Derek Dooley hire? It kind of became something else. But what? Where did that? Where did that pursuit take you? Yeah, it, you know, to me, I was trying to think, David, of you know, of, of all the things, and, and a lot of things, of course, have not gone well over the last ten plus years, but. If one, if you could pick one of them to do over, which one would it be? And I, and I kept coming back to Dooley. I mean, you know, you could make the argument, well, Lane Kiffin wasn't ready and was immature, and then, of course, he bowled. So that is the hire that started them on this, you know, on this path of, of trying to catch up. Um, obviously, you could look at the Butch Jones hire, too. Um, and you could do all kinds of fun stuff, you know, just with, just the search itself that yielded Jeremy Pruitt. But I, I, I thought the duly hire made sense as the, the do over question. And you know, a big thing there is, is you got to get Mike Hamilton and, and he was a good sport about talking about it. But in the meantime, I kind of was looking through, I, I was interested in the idea of how many players were there for Kiffin, Dooley and Butch which would mean, of course, fifth-year seniors for Butch, red-shirted for Lane. And I came up with five names, and I asked you for numbers. <laughs> I mean, th- so this is – you know Daniel Hood. You have done you, – you do a television show with him in Knoxville, got the number. So I just said, okay, give Daniel Hood a call. Perfect. And that turned into a discussion about his life, and I knew nothing about this. Um uh, you know, I think a lot of people, and I vaguely remember him coming in. Of course, there was controversy about him coming into Tennessee, but the bigger thing was, of course, that his mother uh, was killed in a, in a tragic murder suicide when he was going into his fourth year junior year at Tennessee. And the discussion of Dooley got him on the discussion of really what Dooley did to really keep him together during that time. So again, I had no idea about any of this and it just led to this longer discussion. And really it was like three long discussions with Daniel. And I said, I I mean, I need to write about this. You know, I, I I think this is um, just more, just more worthy of being written about, frankly. Um, And and there's still a lot in in the piece about the actual hire and, and Mike Hamilton, but a lot that would have been written did not make it, and it was a lot more about Hood, and it really is a, it's an amazing story and a tough story, but also a success story because he has fought through all that and, you know, made a good life for himself. So, uh, you know, it, I, I hope you know people enjoy it and, and and learn something from it. I know I learned a ton from it, and um, it, it's uh, there's some you know really ugly details, and, and it was just a terrible time for him, but. Also, it's one of those things that, you know, Dooley's never going to, I mean, he's going to be remembered for what he was. He was a he was a disastrous coach here because it's about what you do on the field. And this isn't going to, you know, change a lot of people's minds. But it is a good reminder that there's always so much more 
than just these surface things of you know, your wins and losses. Or, you know, Mike Hamilton, you know, is a guy who fired Fulmer. Did he act alone in that? Of course not. You know, there's always so much more to uh, the stories and to these people. Uh, and so hopefully this kind of sheds a little bit of light on that too. Yeah, you know, Daniel's an interesting guy. Uh, I do the sports source uh, with him on Sunday mornings um, on ABC locally here in Knoxville. and They broadcast on Facebook Live uh, if you're not in uh, Knoxville, and they put it up on YouTube as well. And, and I, I know Daniel a little bit, um, but I, I didn't know this part of, of his story. Um, and so I'd, I'd have to uh, sort of plead ignorance on that. But but you're, you did a great job of, of, uh, of shedding light on it. What, uh, you know... I, how did that sort of shape how you felt about the hire? Because I, I think, um, you know, obviously this is the one coaching hire that in the moment hiring Derek Dooley seemed like a bad decision. But but talking to him and, and sort of talking and working through this story, how did your reporting shape how you felt about it? Well, first of all, you know, I, I think with the hire, you know, you've got to first ask a big question, like who all was really involved? Uh, how many people were actually offered before – Derek Dooley got the offer. Mike Hamilton, unfortunately, would not indulge the specifics. He did say that the media got a lot wrong. <laughs> um, but, you know, he didn't – he's like, I, like I, you know, he, he didn't want to get into um, the actual names and, and, you know, the specifics of who he talked to and all that. There were some things that were, you know, very well documented and reported at the time. David Cutcliffe is one of them. I think the Will Muschamp interest was uh, maybe early, but – you know, what wasn't really, didn't really go anywhere. There was Kevin Sumlin thrown in there. I think Cutcliffe was a, a big interest, at, you know, in terms of on both sides of it. But, you know, there were reports that Cutcliffe wanted his whole staff. There were reports that because Cutcliffe was quote unquote a Fulmer guy, that there were some boosters who didn't like that idea. And, you know, this is still soon after Philip Fulmer was fired. So, but the Dooley, in terms of just Dooley, David, you know, look, he, he like Mike said, and he's very impressive. I mean, he was a saving guy, um, and, and he didn't have a great record at Louisiana Tech, but he was the AD and the coach. He seemed to have done some good things there. He sold himself very well. He was a very impressive guy. He had a ton of people who spoke on his behalf. And the thing with Dooley is – you know, someday maybe Dooley gets another chance to be a head coach. He's done okay for himself since leaving Tennessee. I, I, I you know, Hood went through the specifics of why he think, thinks these guys failed too. Um, and he talked about the strength and conditioning program for Dooley not being good enough. And obviously people know about, you know, the, the end of the LSU game his first year, the end of the bowl game against North Carolina – and then the, the, the recruiting class with no offensive linemen. I and mean, there are a lot of things. It's like, what are you doing? And we also, I had heard, David, you know, the the whole like, okay, the players were torn up. Obviously, when Fulmer was fired, they're torn up when Lane leaves. They were excited. He had a good year. It looked exciting. But there wasn't as much of that when Dooley left. But, you know, here's an example of a guy who was absolutely devastated because he had been meeting once a week with Derek Dooley talking about, this tragedy that happened in his life. Yeah, you know, I think it's um, you, you. You look back on on the the Dooley hire, and one thing I think uh, was overlooked as part of that, and I think it's overlooked in the sport in general, is I think sometimes these ads don't know how to interview guys. I think they get swayed by 
the guys that are most charismatic guys in the room, like, oh, our booze, you know, our our donors are gonna love this guy, and he can, you know, the the the, the ads don't know football as well, and I think, you know, I had a conversation with Tommy Tuberville, who's uh, gone on to some interesting things lately, uh, but I talked to him about this uh, a couple times back uh, when I was covering the Big Twelve, and and he 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 along with uh, Steve Spurrier, I talked to him about this as well. They've lamented the idea that the ads have gone from largely a spot where former coaches populated it to, uh, as as Tubbery would call it, the bean counters, and and I think that's been the case. That's been the case at Tennessee for a long time, and I think when you're interviewing coaches, I think it's just as simple as I'm not sure they know the right questions to ask. And I think when you have a guy like Philip Fulmer in there, I think when you ask. Hey, you know, not just what's your staff going to be like. Well, what's your, you know, what's your philosophy going to look like? What is your strength and conditioning? They know what these things look like, and I'm not sure that all the ads necessarily do. They don't know the the sort of nitty gritty questions to ask. And I think when you talk about a do over, I think it really does sometimes come down to what are the questions that you're asking, and what are the things that as you're figuring out who the right guy to hire is, what are the things that are important to you? And I feel like Tennessee had, has gotten that wrong um, for, a, for a long time. And I think, um, you know, for better or worse, they're all in on, on football guys right now. But uh, well, who were some of the other guys, the names at the time um, that, that Tennessee was kicking around? I, I thought they should have gone interim for a year. But when you think of, when you when you reported through this, what, what were the options? Yeah, I mean, you know, so – You've got you've got Kyle Winningham was another one that they absolutely interviewed and, and went out west and and you know Mike confirmed going out west but that was a you know very reported uh, interview uh, like I said so was Cutcliffe someone I think was later in the process Mike said there were a couple guys that never got mentioned that were in there as well and he said there were a couple coaches who flat out said, you know, you guys are about to get hammered by the NCAA. You know, I mean, obviously they had, you know, a hearing coming up in Indianapolis. A lot of things happened under Kiffin's watch. It did not turn out as bad as, as some feared, but that was part of it too. Just the, the, the specter of NCAA violations. You know, another thing with this, and I think you bring up a great point, David, about, about you know, the coach versus the, the quote-unquote bean counter. And I think bean counters, especially in this day and age, are probably good to have, you know, for a yeah. lot of these departments, you know. But, but no, that's exactly – that's where you are stronger when you have a former coach as an AD, which is, of course, much more uh, rare these days. But another thing with this was the time period. And Mike Hamilton told me this long story about he was out west with TV partners, and then Kiffin happens, and he flies back. He doesn't get back in time to stop the press conference. He would have just told him, like, do it at home. Don't do it here. We have protests on campus. And then, like, basically just didn't go to bed, addressed the team, went to Atlanta, you know, started bringing coaches in there with with his senior staff. Basically, like, three days on no sleep of trying to find a coach because of the urgency of saving that class. And I, I would agree with anyone who says don't ever make a hire to save a recruiting class. You know, you, you have to hire the best coach and make a hire. There's no doubt about that. I will say, too, this wasn't just kind of one class. You had Kiffin's class, of course, eventually fell apart. But when you have the boom, boom, changes it really is it's more than one class so I mean I understand trying to get it done quickly 
I don't know about the interim idea. You know, Kippy Brown had just been brought in as receivers coach by Kiffin, and then Kiffin leaves. Uh, you could have done that, and I think it was insulting. Now, now Hamilton said, look, D- Derek Dooley did not have the job when I left Louisiana. I told him there was another interview. But the bottom line is, you know, I think the decision had mostly been made at that point, right? I think it's more semantics than anything. So Kippy Brown kind of gets, like, the last interview and then moves on, goes on to Seattle, wins Super Bowl ring there. But yeah, I think if you if you go interim there, David, like so basically you got a year now where you're, you know, what do you what are you saying? Yeah, you know, this guy might be the coach, might not be the coach. Like, how does recruiting grow go in that scenario? You know, I mean, to me, I just would have rather you know seen, I guess, a little bit more time taken. But then the question is, what was their actual pool of? Of potential candidates. I mean, certainly, I think Kevin Sumlin would have been a better hire than Derek Dooley, but it it didn't appear to be a a robust pool of of you know potential guys for this job. Yeah, I think that's um, these hires are always complicated. I, I think ultimately, I think I'd prefer the interim over the rushed hire. I, I think when I when I look at the situation, and I remember the hire, um, you know, just in general. I mean, Tennessee's a big job; people pay attention. Derek Dooley was was underqualified for the job. That's just facts. When you look at it now, how would you describe Mike Hamilton's attitude about his decision, looking back on it almost 10 years later? Well, of course, I asked the question. A couple things here on this. One, when I talked to Mike Hamilton, it was before I talked to Daniel Hood. So Mm -hmm. it was going to be, again, much more about this and really about that whole year. Because, you know, there's a lot more going on at Tennessee. Um, Bruce Pearl, his staff, you know, of course, had a barbecue with recruits there and, and, and then lied to investigators. And, you know, Hamilton told me that the day he got the call from someone from the NCAA about that, he called his wife and said, you know, basically, like, our time is coming to an end. He knew that that was going to be um, – you know, the thing, a big part of him leaving. And he did resign. It wasn't like he was forced out by all accounts. You know, he, he resigned, but he resigned under a lot of fire from fans. I mean, there's no doubt about that. And, of course, mm-hmm. he had made some critical comments about Pearl on the radio before they got killed by Michigan in the NCAA tournament, and then, and then he fired Pearl. But, I mean, the firing of Pearl was inevitable, too. Everybody knew that was coming. By the way, he hired him, too. If we're doing a scorecard on Mike Hamilton, it was a, a good coaching hire. But... I think his attitude, and I did ask him the question, you know, if he could do it over. And he, like, he just, like, he, he wasn't going to entertain that idea. Like, you can't do it. You can't do it for real, so I'm not going to do it. Um, <laughs> he did, you know, but he did, and I included this quote in the story, talk about the quickness. And he said, that's one I've pondered a number of times. You know, when you're in the middle of those things, you make decisions, what you feel the best intentions, the information you have because I felt the signing class was already under attack. So he at least acknowledged, I think, that the speed of the whole thing, and, and again, he brought up the exhaustion factor. Um, you know, That's interesting. I, would, I never considered that, yeah. Yeah, you know, I, I think certainly um, he probably would do that a little bit differently, even if he ended up with the same final answer. You know, obviously if you're going back, and doing it over, you're not going to have the same final answer. But, you know, another thing with Dooley, too, by the way, is, you know, the Sal Sanceri hire as D coordinator, really, like the 2012 team had a ton of offensive talent and should have been fine on defense. 
Sunseri comes in, switches from a 4-3 to a 3-4, and it is just an absolutely... And there were a lot of things Daniel Hood told me about that that didn't make the piece about Sunseri as a D coordinator and, and just some of the things that, you know, just shouldn't happen. I mean, I think, you know, there are some coaches who I think could be really good position coaches and just maybe, you know, can't quite handle that global, you know, aspect of a coordinator or head coaching job. Just like maybe Dooley's a guy who's going to be an effective position coach and coordinator, but, you know, maybe he isn't the head coach type. Maybe he will be someday. But that was another part of his tenure that, uh, you know, clearly took that 2012 season south, and and that was it for him. Yeah, I think um, it is interesting. I, I Again, I, I would just, you know, I, I keep coming back to the fact that, you know, the Butch Jones hire in the moment made sense. He was obviously a really hot name. Lane Kiffin was an interesting hire that, that was obviously risky, but it made some sense. Um, I think I think you could maybe make the case that Jerry Pruitt was underqualified when he took this job, possibly, but this job was also not... Um, you know, not as attractive. You know, I think yeah. a lot of people knew that knew the knew the status of the uh, the roster and and obviously the expectations that come here. And um, it, it's interesting. But Dooley was was one that you'd kind of seen him as a head coach, and and for him to get a big job, I mean, Tennessee's probably still a top fifteen job, and uh, for him to grab that, it was it was uh, surprising at the time. Um, not as surprising to see how quickly it seemed like he was he was uh, in over his head a little bit. Well, and another thing with him, especially when you go back to the coverage of him being hired, and of course there's a lot of people saying, wait a minute, is this resume is worth the Tennessee job? And you could say that, like you said, Lane Kiffin, I mean, he had been a complete wonder boy flop with Al Davis and the Raiders. His dad had, had an incredible career, but that was a risky hire. Um, yeah. I think what people saw in that year, though, was, man, this guy can coach, this guy can recruit, Okay, we're gonna have to turn in some violations, and you know you gotta <laughs> try to take the microphone away from them here and there. But you yeah, know, you the could... qualified discussion is the qualified discussion is kind of secondary to you know because a lot of guys that aren't quote unquote qualified for jobs, um, you know, thrive in those jobs. I mean, uh, yeah. Bob Stoops goes from being the defensive coordinator at Florida to being the head coach at Oklahoma. Uh, Lincoln Riley, he was certainly not qualified enough to be the head coach at Oklahoma, and he that's seems right. to be doing he seems to be doing okay for himself. So that's you know I, I I appreciate the ads who are willing to take a chance on some guys and maybe not go toward the quote unquote hot guy that everyone's after. But again, it goes back to those interviews and are you asking the right questions and are you putting stock in the right things? I think that's where Hamilton went awry. Yeah, and so when Dooley came in, another thing is, and you know how this goes too in this sport, David, like if one coach who fails is one thing, it's almost like you can guarantee the next hire is going to be like totally opposite in some way. So there was so much, you know, people were just gaga because Dooley was making like Southern expressions at his press conference, you know, and had a Southern accent. It's like, okay, get away from this (laughs) California stuff and we got one of our own here, you know. Uh, because you know, just that year of Kiffin, and then he leaves them in the lurch, and and people are just like, okay, we got to get an SEC guy, and obviously, the Dooley name uh, is a, is a very a successful and cherished one in SEC history. And look, I mean, I I quoted our friend Mike Strange in this, and he you know 
he said if it's Derek, you know, Johnson or something, does he get the job? I mean, you know, that the last name was a part of this too. The last name and the last name of his mentor, Saban, those things were big. But again, to your point, you know, what did what could he do? What had he demonstrated that that he could do at a program like this? Yeah, exactly. Did you and Daniel get into much discussion about uh, his connection? You know, or the, the similarity in the stories between himself and Brian Maurer? Well, so, you know, we had actually had, already had three interviews, and then Brian uh, put out his message. Uh, that would have been Friday, right? Is that Friday? Uh, I, I mean, I'm so the, bad. Yeah, Friday sounds right, yeah. And so I, I texted him, and and, uh, and we talked again about that. And, you know, I mean, you know of course, he, he could relate to that, but... Um, it's interesting, and I wrote a little bit about this in the piece too. I mean, how much has the discussion around mental health changed in athletics? In I would even say like five years. I would yeah. maybe even like th- even really like two, three years. I think we've seen so much more of prominent athletes being willing to come out and you know and admit that they have struggled with things, admit their vulnerabilities, and this is, I mean, for most of I think our lives, it's more like, no, oh, that's just not something you talk about. Uh, you know, and, I, and really, I, I think it's one of the best developments in athletics in the past few years, honestly, because these are people who, look, if this person who everyone loves and talks about and is this highly successful athlete struggles with these things, then, you know, it's okay for me to struggle with these things. You know, I, I really think there's a lot of value in this, and I, I can't say enough about Brian Maurer and his courage in, in putting it out there. So, yes, I mean, you know, uh, Daniel definitely uh, could relate to that and uh, was, was impressed as well. As I think, I mean, I, I don't know how anybody wouldn't be impressed with with his willingness to do that. And, you know, Mental Health Awareness Month, always important. And obviously, I'd say this year, e- even more so. Yeah, I think it's, um, you know, especially right now. Um, to quote 57 different commercials in these uncertain times, Joe, I think that, I think that, uh, you know, guys being a part is, is really difficult. Um, and I, and I imagine that, that Brad Maurer is not alone in, in athletes who are used to being in, you know, the locker room or in class or hanging out with, you know, 50 different guys. And sometimes they go to, you know, situations at home that can um, make things a little bit more difficult, obviously. And I think when you talk about depression as a chemical imbalance, um, your circumstances don't really matter. Um, Depression takes away from you, um, you know, the things that that you love. You suddenly don't care about them. And um, and I think that's that's an important distinction. But in the same breath, you know, Brian's had a, a difficult life for a lot of different reasons. And uh, for him to come out even about that, I think, is, is, is powerful as well. Oh, no question about it. Um, you know, and I, and I, I mean, you think about, you know, Kevin Love. Uh, he, he had, I thought, a really powerful story here. Actually, you know, Derek Mason, Vanderbilt's coach, his daughter uh, wrote something about her struggles and, and some of the treatments she went through and, and things like that. And I, um, there's no way it's easy. Um, hopefully it's cathartic, you know, for people who, who take that step and step out there and put themselves out there. But I mean, you know, there's no way it's easy. And I I really think that the more these things 
are discussed and talked about, the less stigmatized they are, uh, you know, the more people can get help for things and, and the, the willingness to admit that you need it. Uh, I mean, again, I, I, I think back to, to my youth. I mean, it's just, it's, it, it's so different the way that stuff is viewed. And here, here is one area where I think we can say that society's evolving. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think um, moving forward, somehow we are well through this show. We have not discussed what is, I, I think, legitimately, uh, Joe, the, the biggest story in college football over the last two weeks. And that is Tennessee making a meteoric rise to the top of the recruiting rankings. Now number two behind only Ohio State, who I'm told is very good at football most years. Uh <laughs> This is pretty interesting. I, I, you know, I think we're deep enough in the show now. I can tease. I've got some a very interesting story coming out later this week um, about sort of this dynamic and some stuff that I think people have not heard before. Um, but what have you made of the last week? Tennessee uh, has won a ton of big battles. Uh, adds a couple five stars, uh, three or four four stars. Another three-star lineman yesterday. They get the number one JUCO running back in the country and Tyon Evans. Uh, and then most of these are win after win after win over the Auburns, the LSUs, the Alabama. What what have you made of, of what this means for the next uh, you know few years and what this week means for Tennessee? Well, it's gotten to the point where you look at your watch midday every day and wonder what's going on if there hasn't been a commitment. So, no, it's been, it's been something to behold. And these things... No, there is momentum with these things, and I think a lot of times kids talk to each other, and it's like, okay, I'm going to go here, I'm going to go here. Obviously, they've got momentum. I think you hit it. You you are beating the teams you need to to beat in recruiting battles uh, to to have the kind of talent, have the kind of roster to win championships. And it just seems like, uh, and and I'm sure that your piece will shed some light on this, but it seems like Tennessee has been more nimble, maybe than some programs in these times. Um, these uncertain and, and times. I, there, thank, there you go. There you go. <laughs> um, and I just look, I think like the overall momentum for the program, you're talking about winning seven out of eight games. It's, it's been, uh, it's, 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 it really is like the, the ball rolling downhill. So this is, uh, I, I always hesitate to, you know, you got to show it on Saturdays. You've got to, take these guys and develop them and, and put them into your system and beat other teams with a whole bunch of good players. But for this time of year, you can't ask for much more than this. And I agree. I mean, this is becoming a story in college football that is talked about a lot. How many of these programs are like subtweeting the balls right now with like, Oh, remember when we beat you three years ago? You know, like Georgia and the Oklahoma ones were wild. I was like, I have not seen that since I have uh, been covering Tennessee. That's uh, that is not something that is uh, I'm used to Georgia taking shots at, at, at Tennessee. I mean that, I mean, look, whether they want to acknowledge it or not, that is saying that you are bothering them with what you're doing in recruiting. Mm-hmm. You are you are confirming that they are bothering you. Yeah, it really is, and it Tennessee fans should take some solace in that. I mean, I think that the thing that I find interesting about this is, so I've been covering Tennessee uh, for 23 months now, almost two years, and the one thing that I have noticed, of course, is they're, they're always kind of waiting for something 
you know, to undercut things. I think as hungry as they are, the last decade has really beaten down the Tennessee fan base. And they're kind of waiting for, well, where's the asterisk? Or, oh, we just beat Georgia on a Hail Mary. When's the South Carolina loss coming? You know, those sort of things. Yep. But I'll tell you, with this recruiting situation, there's no anything. I mean, they're getting good guys. I think this staff is very um, diligent about how they evaluate before they even start really recruiting. I mean, their their evaluation um, before they sort of identify the guys that they want is is pretty thorough. You're beating out good guys. These are not – I do – there is a thing. The fake five star is real. Like that is very much a real thing. Uh, and I think evaluation plays into that, but you look at who you're beating again. These are teams that, that really want these guys that are, that are elite recruiting teams. And then of course, you know, the pure numbers, you know, maybe Tennessee doesn't finish in the top three, but you're looking to Tennessee's going to add some guys in the next few days. And they're in the mix for a ton of other five stars and big names. Amarius Mims, they might get uh, back in the mix on him. Uh, Junior Colson, there's a ton of guys that are still out there that they can still get. Um, and and it's a, it is a fascinating situation. Again, I, I, my story later this week will we'll shed some light on a lot of this. And, uh, you know, I think, it, I think fans will appreciate it. But... There is no negative here. There is no uh, questioning what Tennessee is doing right now. This is big-time recruiting. They're winning big-time battles. And if you're going to build an elite program, this is where it starts. And I think, you know, when you look at down the line, if Tennessee is competing for the SEC East or winning the SEC and and you figure out, oh, Jerry Pruitt is the guy, I think you're going to look at the last week of 2019 when you start winning those battles. You, you finish the deal with, with uh, Darnell Wright. You pull a mild shocker and you get a Henry To'oto'o there at the end. You beat Bam out for him. And this last week, I think when you look at the people that are, you know, if Tennessee turns this around and Jeremy Pruitt starts winning big, it's going to be the, these guys that do it. Um, the guys that they, uh, you know, won in 2019 and won now um, that helped them turn this thing around because, you know, you got to start stacking recruiting classes and it, it kind of starts right now. Do you have a sense for – the last time the program has had something like this. I mean, I don't know if Butch had like a week like this. I mean, I know we had a top five class, but just, you know, any feel for how long it's been since they've had this kind of a role. I don't think there has been one in the modern era of recruiting where it was this intense in this short of a period. Um, again, yeah. I'm, I'm not the authority on that. So I will, I will don't take my word as gospel, but from asking around and kind of uh, paying a little bit of attention to it more than obviously I have, you know, in a long time in terms of both recruiting and specifically Tennessee recruiting, I do not get a sense they've ever had a week like this in the modern uh, era of recruiting where, where it's so closely followed, um, which is not that long because I remember, I don't know if Tennessee, Fans read my story about uh, the 1997 class I wrote uh, a year or so ago, but it was the class that had like Travis Stevens in it, Fred Weary, a ton of guys. There was 13 NFL draft picks in one uh, recruiting class, yeah. and it's the best class Tennessee's ever had. And I was talking Jamal Lewis is in that class as well, and they were telling me about they showed up in the dorm on um, 
day one of showing up to campus in like August or July or, you know, pretty later than they do now. And nobody knows anybody. Nobody. Oh, I've, I'd heard of a couple guys, but you had no idea. And this is 1997. That's not that long ago. <laughs> so it's very different now where you're seeing so much peer recruiting. And, and I'll tell you, the social media aspect of it is only the tip of the iceberg. Peer recruiting, that's current players, that's current signees that aren't even on campus yet, that's 2021 20, guys that are committed. That has been a big part of this. Um, and so, uh, yeah, I, I would encourage folks to check that story out. But, yeah, I mean, I think this is going to be um, a, a, a pretty huge class for Jeremy Pruitt and can you parlay this into another class I mean I think too they deserve some credit for starting one and four last year and still rallying even though they did win some games they fell behind on some big guys or for them to start one and four and they were in really bad shape recruiting wise this time last year I think they were barely inside the top 25 and they finished in the top 10 that's an accomplishment in its own I think speaks to if it had been a little bit better on the field last year, you wonder how good that class could have been at Tennessee in 2020. Yeah, I mean, I, I've got to go back and listen to the podcast you and I did with Andy Staples in the press box after that game. Because I remember, Florida, I remember talked, that, the Florida game, yeah. I mean, we talked a lot about, man, recruiting. How, how are they going to salvage this? I mean, how, how damaging is this going to be? And you're right, it may have turned out, better had they never had that dip but overall pretty amazing to to be where they are uh given where they were right at that moment i mean look there there are going to be guys right now who are who who have massive recruiting profiles who don't cut it and there's going to be a two-star who rises up and you know, becomes a key player. That that always happens. But <laughs> like Ari Wasserman says, our our cohort who covers Ohio State. I mean, you you you've got to get the talent, and it's when you get into waves of talent and stack classes. You know, that's you know, then you have enough of these guys. It, it is going to pay off. It translates to the field in large numbers over time. And when you get these guys like a Dylan Brooks in the boat, like a Cody Brown in the boat. It gives you a foothold with guys that you might not have a chance with elsewhere or, uh, or otherwise, and uh, I think Tennessee can can start to capitalize off that as well. When you talk about, hey, good players want to play with good players, and they, the hard part for Tennessee right now is done, and that they've got the, the some pretty big fish in the boat, and uh, they'll be reeling in some some more in no time. I mean, I think you're definitely going to see this run continue for at least a few more days, and I think it'll continue. Um, you know through the recruiting calendar. Uh, so, yeah, Tennessee fans, I would uh, I would keep an eye out uh, on that front. Uh, well, Joe, that will do it for this week's episode. Again, read Joe's piece uh, on the Derek Dooley do-over uh, and how that's kind of a complicated question sometimes. And, of course, I'll have that piece about recruiting later this week. Uh, Joe, any parting thoughts for us? You know, you would think that I'd be ready for you to say that to me by the end of this. But, David, <laughs> in these uncertain times, I just can't be expected to have a parting thought. Uh, just please stay safe, everyone. Um, I, I drove by a restaurant today that had a patio, and it was largely full. And, you know, stay safe, stay careful. Let's uh, let's be on the same team and, and get out of this. That sounds like a good plan to me. Joe, thanks for... Uh telling your story and giving us a look into that. Again, if you're not a subscriber, 
you should change that. We've got a 90-day free trial uh, going on right now that you should take advantage of. Uh, just because sports are down uh, and nothing's happening, we're still writing plenty of great stories. Uh, Matt Fortuna's story about uh, our curly-headed mullet uh, hero from the last <laughs> stands on Saturday on the Sunday night was one of my favorite things I've read in quite some time. It's the exact story I was hoping to read. It was so awesome. We're going to have tons of stuff. And, of course, right now, a lot's happening on Tennessee. So, again, I'm your host, David Ubbin, my co-host, Joe Rexrode. Thanks for tuning in. Like, rate, review, subscribe, all that stuff. Thanks again for listening. We'll see you guys again very soon.